Lift up your hearts. Lift them up to the Lord. Wonderful. Um, a few things as we get started here. Um, just, just kind of some housekeeping things as we enter into the study of God's Word and the worship of God through, um, through God's Word. Um, I want to encourage you a couple of things. Um, one, um, I want to encourage you to carry a physical Bible. In other words, an old school pen, or not pen, ink and paper um, copy along with a pen. Um, I think that technology has, um, technology design has some features that are good and some features that um, are not so good. And I have never had, um, besides from the Holy Spirit, um, a notification pop up in my Bible as I'm reading. Um, so this is uh, a, a a relatively, except for my own mind, undistracted copy of God's Word. And so I want to encourage you to use this kind of technology, especially here in church. Um, so, you know, with that said, we do use and utilize um, our cell phones. And I think they can be a, a gift. And we're going, to, we're, we're going to have a time of response in which you can pick up your cell phone. Um, there are copies of God's Word um, that I think are under the, the chairs there if you don't have a physical copy. But I may ask in the weeks to come, hey, who's got a copy of God's Word? And um, so I think that that's really important. Um, I want us to, to be thinking about in the next th few months time and space and how we occupy time and space. We've been talking about it in, in the Psalms and we think about forms. Um, I was listening um, to uh, a man who gave a testimony. Um, he was sitting at an open cafe and uh, um, on the West Coast and looked over and there was a group of Christians at this outdoor cafe and they had their Bibles opened. And it was their Bibles um, that were open. This man had very little religious background um, that caused him to ask one question which led to another question which led to him coming to know Christ as Savior. I think one of the most radical things that you can do is ditch your Bible on your phone and carry a, a copy with you wherever you go. Read it. Read it publicly. Um, carry it with you. I think that, that makes a time and space um, that makes a time and space statement. Also, it's bulky. It's a little bit of a pain um, to carry a physical Bible when you can have like thousands of them right here. Uh, but I think it's, it's worth it. It's a technology that, um, a printed Bible is a technology that is extremely, extremely helpful. Um, so use that. Um, and I encourage you to write in your Bible, write in the margins. Um, my Bible is held together um, by stickers and uh, the, the name tags in the front and in the back. And so I write in my Bible and when it kind of gets cluttered and has, I, I get another copy. And just start, start again um, with, with another copy. And so I would encourage you to, um, to use your Bible, write in your Bible. Um, don't let your Bible um, grow old and unused. It's a, an important tool uh, for us, um, that, that physical copy of God's Word. Second, I want us to think about this space that we're in. We occupy this space on Sunday mornings. It becomes a very different place. Um, this is holy ground. And so as we're working to teach our children that this is a holy place. Other times during the week, this is practically a gymnasium. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things. We, and thank you for your faithfulness as a, as a community to, to give. We occupied this space with pastors for um, word partners. It was an amazing, amazing time um, this past week, several days spent in the study of God's word here in this room. So this room changes into various things throughout the week. On Sundays, it is very different. And we need to come on Sundays with a different mindset, and we need to instill that into our children. Um, so teach them to be very reverent as they come in, which usually means putting the brakes on and slowing down. And so there's some practical reasons for that, um, but there's some very important reasons um, that we need to instill in our children on Sundays. This is what the church is about. Now, other days, we might actually encourage them to run through this space and that is okay. That's perfectly okay. But on Sundays, we're occupying holy ground. Um, there was one other thing that I had, but I totally forget it. 
So take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 104. Psalm 104. I'm sorry, Psalm 106. Psalm 106. Um, We are in the last psalm of book four. And the beginning and endings of books are really important. So psalms, all the psalms, the collection of psalms, are divided into five books, five sections. And they're they're divided and assembled, edited on purpose. Um, It is the worship book for the people that are coming out of exile, for God's people that are coming out of exile. Uh, Book 3 ended with Psalm 89. It was a reflection of disparity between God's promise to David and the fall of David's house, the condition of David's house. And book 4 opens up, actually it opens and closes. Book 4 in Psalm 90 begins with Moses' prayer. We're going to see Moses praying in Psalm 106, verse 23. The promises, and promises are important in Scripture, the promises to David are reiterated in that second chapter, second psalm, Psalm um, 91, um, and all the way through um, Psalm 103, they're reiterated. These are the promises to David. David, they're they're a reiteration of this kingly line. They end in Psalm 106, with asking for forgiveness. And so what we see is this progression. It's a progression um, of Israel's story. We started with Psalm 104, Israel's story in creation, all the way to 106, this journey of God keeping his promises. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. And we'll notice that in Psalm 103, 104, 105, 106, they begin and end with this kind of hallelujah. This is an exciting time in this section of Scripture as we retrace the fact that God is keeping his promises. I emphasize time and space because I think it's really important that we emphasize time and space and the forms that God uses in time and space. So 104, as we looked at, it meditated on God's work in creation. Creation itself shapes us. Creation is involved in our, even our own sanctification. The psalmist asks the question in Psalm 104, will God keep his promises? And he answers it by saying, look at creation. Of course God will keep his promises. Look at creation. Isn't it amazing the way that God makes promises. He's got a purpose in how he creates everything, and his purpose is fulfilled in creation. Certainly, he will keep his promises. You are here, and you are part of creation. We talk about time and space in forms. Let me ask you this. Are you here right now? Are you here right now? So check in. Um, Check in with yourself. Think about the tops of your knees all the way to the bottom of your nose and everything in your body that's in between. Just for a moment, ask yourself, not what are you thinking? Everything above your nose is pretty much cognitive. But what are you sensing? See, we have this way of thinking and even, you know, we're we're broadcasting this and We're glad that there are people who are watching, but those people are not with us here. They are not in worship here. Worship is the gathered people of God. So do not be fooled by the illusion that if you are streaming in, that you are having the same experience. You are not. But we also have to think about, are the people who are here really here? Not only what is happening in your brain, but what is happening in your body. We we know that we are an incredibly distracted people. Did you know it's possible to physically come here in worship and not be here? And be somewhere else? And it's not just thinking. It's like settling your whole self into this place and into this space. And saying, now I'm here. I'm ready. 
I'm ready to receive God's word. See, Psalm 104 meditated in the fact that we're also part of creation. God has created us in the world around us for a particular purpose. And even as he has created us to be in time and space, we are fulfilling a particular plan that God has before the foundations of the world that he will accomplish when time as we know it, when creation as we know it ends and is renewed. Psalm 105 begins with specific promises, promises to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, and moves all the way through the Exodus. Psalm 106 moves from Exodus to exile. That's what we're going to get into today. So we're going to start Exodus, and we're going to complete the history of Israel to exile. Psalm 106 actually confesses sin. We went to confession earlier today. It confesses sin in obedience to God because it's God who commands us to confess sin. It confesses sin in accordance to Leviticus chapter 26, verses 40 through 42. Let me read those for you. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me and also walk contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled, they will make amends for their iniquity. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. So here we see that there are particular conditions that God has placed on this covenant. It's, a, it's, a, it's beyond um, what we need to do here, but we notice that we are not called to keep much in the covenant. But what are we called to keep? We are called to depend on the covenant keeper. That's all that we can do. And so we're called into repentance. And it's then that the covenant keeper keeps his covenant and remembers. So here what we see is that in the Psalm 106 is that God, is, God, God made us and he is making us to enjoy him forever. We're going to see that in the Psalm because there is great praise in the Psalm. It begins and ends with hallelujah, with praise. If we settle for anything less than God, we destroy ourselves with perverted and polluted practices and enslave ourselves to merciless idols and powers that will only punish, never save, and never satisfy. So here we're going to look at the psalm, and um, here's the outline. We'll see that um, the middle part of the psalm is where the point is. And so what I've done is I've kind of color-coded the outline a little better than a few weeks ago. Hopefully it'll show up good. It shows up well. So you can see the parallels. Um, in this psalm, there's, there's really four points, but it's reiterated twice. And so here we see at the middle that idol idolatry and unbelief is at the very middle. And so we're going to work our way in and out of the psalm through these eight points this morning. So take your Bibles and let me read for you. Um, it's a lengthy psalm. Let me read for you the entire psalm. Psalm 106. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare his praise? Blessed are those who observe justice, who do righteousness all, at all times. Remember me, O oh Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry. 
He led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had wanton cravings in the wilderness and God and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the holy ones of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire broke out in their company and the flames burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb. And they worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said, I would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Then they yoked themselves to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. And that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went well, or, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them, and sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with their blood. Thus, they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. The anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage, but he gave them into the hand of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjugation under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes, and they were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake he remembered his covenant and he relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, let all his people say amen. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> so we're going to walk through this psalm. It's a, it's a beautiful psalm. I would encourage you even um, before the, the sun sets or you go to bed to read this again. And consider how God in his steadfast love operates. 
in the world. This psalm is a wonderful psalm for we, we see how God keeps his covenant and how God responds to his people and how God deals with all creation. First, we see that the psalmist is crying out to be delivered. It says, praise the Lord. It begins with praise. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. It begins reminding the hearers, the singers, and God of, of his enduring, his hesed love, his covenant-keeping love. Love, in order to be love, has to be undergirded, has to be built on the foundation of trustworthiness. Love that is flim-flam and here one day and gone another is not love at all. But God's love is steadfast. It endures forever. And here the psalmist is drawing attention to the mighty deeds of, of God. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare his praise? In other words, his praise is beyond us. We can attempt, but it is far greater than, than our words will ever do it justice. And he recounts in verse 4, Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them. In other words, he sees himself as part and parcel with the people of God, as we should ourselves. Notice that the psalmist does not see himself on an independent, um, contractual, spiritual journey. But rather, he sees himself enfolded into the camp of God's covenant people. He does not have his identity apart from God's people. He retains his identity. He certainly is human. Um, he has certain characteristics, but he sees his spiritual lot bound up in the lot of God's people. Verse 5, that I may look on the prosperity of the chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. So he sees his his spiritual journey, his spiritual quest, as one not for his own salvation, although it is part and parcel. But what is he looking at? He's looking at, oh Lord, may my salvation be part and parcel with the saving of your people. Is that how you think about your spiritual life? Do you see yourself bound up spiritually in league with God's people? So God's people go, so you go. Or do you see yourself as spiritually neutral, spiritually above or spiritually below, spiritually independent from the people gathered in this room? The psalmist says there is no separation. Yes, you are your own per person. You are differentiated from the people in here. You don't lose your identity. You don't lose your eye color, your hair color. You are created male and female. You don't lose those kinds of accents. But you spiritually are bound with the people in this room. That's what the psalmist is saying. And so he is, is praising the Lord for what God has done. And he is praying as well with Moses later on for their deliverance. Notice the confession beginning in verse 26. Or, I'm sorry, verse 6. He, he begins to confess in, this, in seeing the exodus um, and their sin. Both we and our fathers have sinned. Notice again, he's continuing that theme, but it's not simply a present theme. What is, what is it? It is a past theme. He's saying we're not any better than those who came out of, of Egypt in the Exodus. Both we and our fathers have sinned. How? We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. How did we sin? We did not consider, verse 7, your wondrous works. We didn't remember. Right? He, in verse 4, he says, remember me. In, in verse 1, he says, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. He's calling on God to remember his love, his love that endures forever, to remember him. And then he says, we've sinned because we did not do what? We didn't remember the abundance of your steadfast love. We didn't consider your works, and we didn't remember that you have abundant, steadfast love. You see, there's something to rebellion and idolatry that says, I have to make myself, I have to be worthy, I have to measure up, that leads to a spirit of unforgiveness in others. 
You've heard often, I hear it far too much. It makes me, um, it upsets me. Oh, forgive yourself. Oh, just forgive yourself. You can't forgive yourself. If I came down and smacked Jim on the head, Jim would be mad at me. I would be fearful. So I would say, Jim, I've forgiven myself. Jim would say, oh, you're right. Walk away. Emotionally, he'd be fine. Right? Right. He said, right. I heard that. No, you can't, be, you can't forgive yourself. What, what, what was the problem here? The problem was he didn't remember the abundance of what? God's steadfast love that leads to forgiveness. But what did they do? Again, remember that he is bringing the past into the present and saying, this is us. We rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for what? His namesake, that he might make his mighty power known. God continues. Isn't that amazing? Thank God for this. That when we are wicked and wayward, that God still saves. Not because there's anything good in us, but because he wants to make known his steadfast and abundant love to us. Oh, that we would call upon him for forgiveness. The rescue is not going to come from inside of us, but it is alien and external to who we are and to all creation. It is God who saves. In verse 9, it says, He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry land, and he led them through the deep as though through a desert. You know, that, that tells us that when the Red Sea was parted, right, there was dust they were kicking up as they went through. When God does a miracle, he does it completely. When he saves, he saves completely. When he destroys the enemy, he destroys them completely. It says that when the waters closed over, not a single one of the enemies of Israel from Egypt was left complete. That's how God saves, complete. What did Israel do? What did they have to do in that moment to be saved? They simply had to be, to be obedient. And one could say, well, they walked. That's giving them far too much credit compared to what ha was happening. The waters parted. The waters rose and they walked on dry land. Who conquered the enemy? It was the power of God. And so we see the only exodus from sin is the salvation that comes from God and from him alone. And only then, only when they were brought out by the mighty power of God that they began to sing his praise. It was God at work. It was his hand in it. And they sang his praise on the opposite side. Moses and all of God's people as the word of God says, lifted up in psalm, in song to God. We see then what happened in Psalm 106, 13 through 18, that their desire, their desire led them to complaining and jealousy and sin. What happened? It's memory, isn't it? They soon forgot that's what verse 13 says. They soon forgot his works, and they didn't what? They weren't patient with God. They didn't wait for his counsel. But what happened? They, they had a wanton craving, a desire in the wilderness. And so they put God to the test in the desert. And what does God do? Verse 15 says, he said, oh, that's what you want. That's what you desire. You're not going to, to be patient with me. I'll give you what you want. So God did. Be careful. We, we do have desires. Right? That's why I said, like, think about from the bottom of your nose to the tops of your knees. Are you present here? Because generally our desires don't begin up here. Right? Our desires begin, right? We, our, our, there's, our body has a particular logic, right? 
Our body has a particular logic. You, I was watching you while Nick was giving the exhortation, and he talked about pizza and macaroni and cheese over steak. But I want you to think about this. Your body has a certain logic. Do you ever get hungry in your mind? Maybe, but not usually. Right? Even as I spoke about food, no one said I have a craving above my nose to the top of my head. Right? When you talk about really good food, like you can feel it. Oh, I'm so hungry. Your body has a logic to it. It has a desire. It is particular habits that form and shape desires. Our bodies are made for that kind of thing. You think about how even light bulbs change your body's habit. Light bulbs are a good thing. I'm not saying we should go Amish. I'm not against technology. I want to make that clear. But some of you can't sleep because your body doesn't hit a right rhythm, a rhythm which God made, sun and moon, that actually affects your body. The sun and moon affect, and the moon especially, affects what? The The largest bodies on the face of the planet, namely the sea. And so those also dictate seasons and sleep by God's form and God's design. When you look at creation and you look at at what God is doing, we say this is amazing because it's all woven together. And here, God's people did what? They forgot here the works of of God, and because they forgot the works of God, they gave into from here to here, right? So, so you might think on Sunday morning, well, I'm here on Sunday morning, I'm here in mind, but are you from here to here submitting to what God has for you? The very forms and shapes of what we do, coming, calling, praising, confessing, worshiping through the words of Scripture, responding, and then we end with what? Something that engages our mind only or bread and wine, our body. Be careful. Be careful that you don't know the right things, not practice the right things. In other words, not habituate those things over and over and over again. I'm going to tell you a little secret. You will never learn something really new ever on Sunday mornings. If you know your Bible, you've been around, I will not tell you anything new. Hardly ever. You're not here to discover some new, creative, innovative, entertaining truth. None of that saved anyone in the exodus in the wilderness. What saved them? Remembering the word of God. That's why you show up every Sunday morning. To habituate yourself to remember the word of God. You will, if you get something new, I have failed because I'm departing from the word of God. So you will never be entertained here. That's not what we're here to do. It says, so God gave them what they, what they wanted. The men in the camp were jealous of Moses. Notice there, notice what that is. That, that is a desiring word. They wanted what Moses had. Uh, and I think Moses probably felt the same way as God. You want what I have? I would be happy to give it to you. Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord. And what happened? The earth opened up. This is number 16 with Korah and Dathan and Abiram. And fire broke out in the flame. They were judged in the wilderness. And so we, here we see the exodus and, and sin. The confession precedes this, but um, the exodus and sin, what was the sin? It was desiring. It was complaining. Don't miss that. 
It was complaining and jealousy. I don't have what I want, and I don't have the job I want. I don't have what I want, and I don't have the position or power that I want. And what does God do? For complaining and jealousy, wanting to be somewhere that they aren't right now, God opens up the earth and consumes them and sends fire from heaven and consumes them. And then the scene moves next to, to idolatry. Right? So it moves, notice how it moves from praise to confession of sin and part and parcel with that sin, remembering the, you know, through this, it's, it's complex, it's, it's messy, it's confusing in some ways because you're seeing here sinfulness, but you're also seeing the faithful love of God. Notice that this is all mixed in with God's people, God's covenant people, and then it moves to the very heart of unbelief, idolatry and unbelief in the golden calf at Horeb, They made a calf, and they worshipped a metal image, and they did what? They exchanged the glory of God for an image of an ox that eats grass. How ridiculous, we say. We would never do that. And it says what? It moves from the, the previous section in desire and complaining and jealousy to outright what? They forgot, and this is a very strong word, They put out of their memory. That's what they did. You know, sometimes you say, oh, I forgot. Right? And and children, like, if you forget, your parents are going, okay, yeah, you forgot. But then you forget again, they're going to be like, hey, come on. You need to remember. And then you go, oh, I just forgot. You know, and then if it's like the 30th time you forgot, You know what that parent's going to do? No, what you did was you didn't just forget. You put it out of your memory. You did not want to remember. And that's what's being addressed here. It is full-on idolatry. It is a putting away of God, putting away of the practices, um, both religious and personal. It is a going their own way. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Wondrous works in the land of Ham. Awesome deeds by the Red Sea. And God responds. And he says that he's going to destroy them. And here we see another savior. A mediator. Moses. Here we see in the ending psalm of the songbook here. Book four. One that does what? Intercedes. Prays on their behalf. And God turns his wrath away. Then the scene changed. So this is in the middle of of the song here, emphasizing this idolatry and unbelief. Um, It reiterates a particular kind of sin in idolatry. Notice verses 24 through 27. They despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. Oh, God, you, you're not going to fulfill your promise. God, you've set things out before me. Those are eternal things. I want things right now. They despise the pleasant land, the destiny of God's promise. And what do they do? They go into their tents and they complain. They murmur over and over and over again, complaining. I think complaining here is mentioned not just here, but in in Scripture, especially through the Old Testament, that complaining is the litmus test of idolatry. We hear a lot of complaining these days. A lot of complaining. A lot of complaining against God and against the people of God, against his church. What does it result in? They did not obey the voice of the Lord. Why? Because their lips were moving too much. When your lips are moving, your ears aren't open. 
and your hands aren't serving and your feet aren't walking in the right direction. And therefore, what, what does God do? We've heard this in the previous verses. He says he would raise a hand and he swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness, that he would make their offspring fall among many nations and scatter them among the lands. They despised God's promise and they complained and they did not hear the voice of God. Ten spies said, no, we can't do it. Two said that we, we can and they did not listen to the promise of God. And so what happens when we do not listen to the promise of God? Now notice how it, it moves out. It's moving back to the the praise and cry to be delivered. It's moving back out of this central theme of idolatry. That's at the heart, this unbelief that comes from a complaining heart. What happens when we give ourselves to idolatry? Then they yoke themselves to Baal of Peor and they ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked their Lord to anger with their deeds and a plague broke out among them. And so here we see it's very similar that God gives them what they want. And what they want um, is something that does not bring them hope, health, happiness, connection. But rather, what does it do? It's disease, unease, uneasiness, anxiousness. It says, then Phineas stood up and intervened. Go back to Numbers. All through this passage, Numbers is referenced. Numbers 16 and Numbers 14. And here we're in Numbers um, 25, verses 1 through 3. Okay, kids, I'm about to read this. This is in your Bible if you're reading it. So, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited, these invited the people to sacrifice to their gods. The people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. That sounds pretty judgy there, doesn't it? Oh my goodness, what, what's he doing there? This is a really Old Testament. Well, let's see what's happening. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel. And while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, and son of Aaron, and the priest saw it, he rose and left the congregation, took a spear in his hand, and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Okay, now. That scripture is pretty, pretty graphic, and you think, what in the world is God telling Moses? Moses is doing this, killing these individuals. And then you have Phineas, right, who goes and, and, the, and the scriptures there are descriptive enough, right, in a congregation like this with young children present for you to know exactly what's happening. Especially the clue is there in the way the man and the woman were put to death. See, this is happening publicly. It's, it, it, is a, it is a public display. And, and the people there are watching this. 
we might think we've come a long way in technology. Now we know what God thinks of these things. And so here we have this horrible, horrible public display where one man says, this is not good, and he takes a sword and puts an end to it. And notice the words there in verse 31. And it was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. And then at the end here, here, what are the two sins? Well, we see this very public sin. But notice here how it's going to compare these sins. They angered him at the waters of Meribah. Now, we've been reading this as our Psalm 95, a call to worship. And it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. What, what, was, what was the problem at Meribah? The water wasn't good enough. And so what does Israel do? They complain. And God says to Moses, speak to the rock. He's telling Moses to give this illustration of how when you are at a deficit, trust me, speak to me. The rock we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is Christ, but what does Moses do in his anger? He strikes the rock. Notice what was the sin there? What was the sin of the people there that And the sin of Moses, he got frustrated. He wasn't trusting God that God would take care of the people. And the people weren't trusting God that God would take care of them. No one was trusting God, the leader or the people. What was the problem? It was water. Lest we look at the first part of this section in this psalm and we go, oh, yes, yes. Thank God for Phineas. He did a good thing. That's just horrible what was happening. No, what's equated here, what the psalmist is equating, is that public display with the public murmuring against God and his leaders. Both are just as egregious. We need to think about that. When we see the psalmist placing those two together, And we need to see Moses' response. Moses' response, and why was he judged? Because he did the same thing. He struck the rock. Complaining and idolatry are always linked in Scripture. Here they're linked, and we see the ugliness. We see the ugliness of sin when it is sin that is the sin of unbelief. We can fail to believe God in many, many different ways. But yet what we see is as we come out of this, you know, it's beautiful the way that the psalm is ordered because now we're coming out of this to the praise again and the cry to be delivered. Um, the, the next to last section in here, verses 34 through 46, recount again the Israel and their sin. They did not destroy the people as the Lord commanded them. What did they do? Verse 36, they served idols which became a snare to them. But notice what happens. Notice what happens when you serve idols. They affect not just you, but they affect generations. What did they do? They sacrificed sons and daughters to demons. They poured out innocent blood who the blood of their sons and their daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan and the land was polluted with blood they became unclean by their acts and they played the whore by their deeds they see some similarities to what's happening prior to this and the result of those that are idolatrous that murmur and complain and tolerate things they ought not to tolerate. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his heritage. 
and he gave them into the hand of the nations. I think one of the key verses is, is, is verse 41, when we see those that hate God's people ruling over God's people, what is it? It is a sign that God's people are in unbelief and idolatry so that those who hated them ruled over them. And what happened? Their enemies oppressed them and they were brought into subjugation against or under their power. Again, in contrast, many times God delivers them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and brought low in their iniquity. Now, a beautiful, beautiful phrase. What's that first word in your Bibles of verse 44? Oh, come on, say it again. Woo! Say it one more time, like, like the way it needs to be said. Nevertheless, oh, aren't you so thankful that we, when we are faithless, he is faithful. Nevertheless, nevertheless, he looked upon their distress and he what? Heard their cry for their sake. He remembered what? His covenant. His covenant. Why is covenant membership so important? Why is professing membership to a local body so important? Because God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. Right? And his people need to mirror covenant love. Right? If the... If the body of Christ is bound in covenant love, we, we see that in marriage, right? Marriage is bound in covenant love and has particular vows and commitments and expectations. So God, who, who does this, all of this come from? It comes from the one who is the promise maker and the promise keeper, who we know we fail horribly. Nevertheless, he is faithful. Praise God. God. Now, does this mean that then what we do is we just don't make promises because we're just not, oh, I don't know if I can live up to that? Listen, it, go back and remember that you're not the one who divides the Red Sea. You're not the one who makes dry land. You're not the one who scatters the enemies. You're the one who simply obeys and walks through, and you say it's all because of God's grace. He's the covenant maker. He's the covenant keeper. We need to reflect that kind of love. And how do we do that? By loving each other. I believe in these days, our greatest acts of love are not the large events that we can put on for our community. But rather doing what we're doing right here, right now, and through the week, taking care of one another and keeping the promises we have made to each other in the eyes of God, in our families, namely marriage, and in our covenant family, the church, so that no one goes without, because God will never leave us or forsake us. And you see, the world, the world is out there wondering if there's any security And they can find it right here and right here as we look to the one who keeps his promise. So the cry goes out, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name. Glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. It, it ends on this praise and cry to be delivered. So how do we apply this? How do we apply this? Well, we, we, we certainly see a lot of things here that we can make specific application, but I believe the application is not just simply for me or for you individually, although individually we're called in obedience, but we're called together. You know, this is, a, this is an unusual time of year, although we, we pass through it, right? You have the Super Bowl, and now we have March Madness, Right? And people have teams that they root for. And um, I'm, I'm going to use sports as an illustration. But I want you to understand this. And 
It's not all bad, although I think we have to be discerning because a lot of um, sporting is wrapped up in the liturgy of the world. I want to just pull the veil back a little bit. You think about that. When I came to, to Michigan a long time ago, it's a state divided because you get asked, right? Who are you going to root for? What? What are, the, what are the kind of the two teams in Michigan? Michigan and Michigan State, right? You're here. You guys know. You know the liturgy, right? So I have nothing to do with either ones, but I pick one. For some of you, you know, I'm, I won't make a deal which one I picked right now, but I picked one. Now, I didn't go to those universities, either one. I didn't even know. Just was like, well, who's winning? I picked the ones that were winning at the time. How many people do you know have never been to any of those universities, don't have any affiliation, but have a fierce loyalty to a team. You ever wonder what that's about? My wife has a friend, Chad. He has a huge Pittsburgh Steelers tattoo. That's amazing. It would just you know, Think about that. What, what are people looking for in those kinds of things? Well, you get to stand around the water cooler or the lunchroom, and you get to talk about what? Your tribe. Your tribe. Right? What you have vested. But honestly, what do people have vested in these teams? What do they really have vested in them? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. You see, people are looking out in the world. They're looking for this kind of covenant community. And where are they finding? The liturgy of the world is organizing in tribes. But people are always looking at the risk and reward. Um, and they, they, they treat these teams and tribes kind of like stickers on a NASCAR car, right? You have this car and it's got all these stickers on it, right, of, of the sponsors because they want recognition of the particular car. The problem is, the problem is, in these tribes, there's very little that we have vested. We have very little vested in these. And so what do we do? When we don't have a lot of skin in the game, what makes the game more interesting? We've got to get skin in the game. Have you noticed the rise of sports betting? It's everywhere. Why? Because what we want is we want a tribe. We, we want everything the tribe has to offer. We're just consumers. We want all that the tribe has to offer us so that we can talk about being on the winning team. But as soon as they start changing, we're going to switch. We're going to tear the sticker off and put a new one on. Some of you don't even commit to a tribe. What do you have? You have a fantasy team, right? You have a fantasy team. But this is the world that we live in, and this is the liturgy that we are conditioned to every day, and it's why sports betting, porn, and pot. When you drive up 131 or 94, you look at nearly every single billboard, and you will see that, that nearly every single advertises one of those three things. Do you ever wonder what's happening around us? What's the solution? Well, I know we're in church, so we're going to talk about Jesus, right? He is the solution. But what is he doing? He's forming a covenant community. But how are Christians treating the things that are to form and shape them, that save them and sanctify them, that save them and they are being saved? Do they not treat the church like a NASCAR car? where they can just tear off a sticker and put another one on? Aren't they looking really for sports betting, porn, and pot in their spiritual life? Easy and quick. Isn't that what the psalmist just said here? I think the application is to recognize that there are forms that God has given to us. Jesus is the creator and the redeemer. He's the author and finisher of our faith. And so he has created us unique, right? And we can say, well, you know, the world wants to change the forms of creation. Shame on them. 
And yet we fail to see how our complaining about the water is about the same thing. And so we have much to repent of. We don't oftentimes see our spiritual lot in lockstep with God's people. And the psalmist says, no, this is what we're praying for, and it's for which we praise God to see God's people flourishing. Is that your prayer? Or is your prayer simply for you, that you might flourish, or maybe your family flourish? Yes, you should pray for yourself, and yes, you should pray for your family, but what is going to form and shape your family and ultimately lead to the flourishing of people in our community? It's when God's people together flourish because they're obedient to God's word. So how you love one another and are obedient to God in his word is important to the testimony of the word of God. That's what the psalmist here points to prayer and praise. May we as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the beauty of this psalm as it closes out book four. Lord, we pray that you would send renewal, reformation, and revival to your church so that the church together would say, blessed be the Lord, the God of God's people from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people of God, may they say amen and praise the Lord. Amen.